0: Hi, I'm Lee, and welcome to my new podcast called Wait a Damn Minute. Throughout this podcast, you'll learn about everything your Sunday school teachers forgot to mention. So grab a snack and a seat, buckle up, and get excited. Hey, everybody. So, welcome, welcome, welcome to this new podcast called Wait a Damn Minute. My name is Lee. I am the founder of this podcast. Do I have the credentials and audacity to call myself a founder? I think I do. Anyhow, um, up front, I do want to say and ask for your kindness and understanding, I have a 95-pound white lab who is very vocal when he is not the center of attention, so I apologize in advance for any extra auditory bonuses that you may experience throughout this and future episodes. So now that you have that disclaimer, let's go ahead and jump into this very first episode of Wait a Damn Minute. What I'd like to do is give you a lay of the land of who I am and what has gotten me to this point of starting a podcast for myself. So first and foremost, my name is Lee. I currently live in Dallas, Texas. I am a native Texan. I grew up outside of Houston in a suburb called Sugar Land. I grew up in a conservative evangelical household And I will say to anyone who's like, oh, next caller, press pause on that and wait till the end of the story because I've got some twists and turns for y'all. It would be fair to say that growing up, I did go to church fairly regularly when my dad was able to quite literally drag me out of bed, but... It wasn't until I went to college working on my undergraduate degree at Texas Tech University that I became friends with a couple of girls who gave me the first Bible I ever owned and guided me and answered my questions and my curiosities and my doubts and my issues with the Bible and Christians that I then what many in the evangelical world would call, got saved. And after that, and after completing my undergraduate degree, I decided to stay in Lubbock, Texas for a year and volunteer as an intern at a campus ministry nonprofit where I had to raise my own support, and I lived off of $1,000 before tax. Um, a year. And at the completion of this internship, I did move out to Wilmore, Kentucky, which is a very small town of two stoplights outside of the horse capital of the world, Lexington. And I began my Master of Divinity at Asbury Theological Seminary. And throughout my time in seminary, while earning my degree, I did a lot of inner healing work, self-awareness work, therapy, and all of that work accumulated into the fall of my third year getting sober from a 10-year alcohol addiction. So yes, I did get sober in seminary, not the normal place people assume one would get sober in. However, It's where I did. (laughs) So the last two years of my seminary career were spent obviously cleaning up the wreckage of my past, making amends, working a 12-step program, having a sponsor. Once I got a year of sobriety under my belt, sponsoring others, uh, other women specifically, because if you're familiar with recovery programs, girls stick with the girls and guys stick with the guys. And so throughout that experience, while at the seminary, people obviously noticed a distinct change in my behavior and my presence and how I carried myself and the fact that I wasn't going to class drunk. And they took note of that. And I quickly became the poster child of, look, Addiction exists within the church. Just because you have Jesus does not mean you are void of addiction or other things. And so I quickly got asked to do things like be involved on a panel for continuing education for people that were in current pastoral ministry to share my story so that people and parishioners in their churches would not be shamed for coming forth and being honest about their own struggles and addictions. And in 2013, when I graduated, I then took a job in pastoral ministry at a United Methodist Church in Mississippi and quickly encountered the underbelly of the religious institution that seminary did not prepare me for. And I spent just over a year and a half in formal pastoral ministry before resigning. That may be a story I will get into in the future, but that deserves an episode all of its own. And after leaving the religious institution, I returned to finish a master's in spiritual direction degree at Asbury. But I found when I returned to seminary the second time, after having had the experience I did, I was asking questions nobody else was. I was hearing things that I had bought hook, line, and sinker the first time, like numbers don't matter, money doesn't matter, you just need to love people, and don't be afraid to try something new, and if it fails, that's okay. And that was held up against the truth of my experience, which was Numbers and money most certainly do matter. And I was sitting, I had sat in staff meetings where the senior pastor and other people on staff at the church were saying things like, it takes three years for parishioners who are new to the church to tithe regularly. And so if you see someone you don't recognize, Make sure you go up to them and introduce yourself, find out a little bit of information about them and either connect them with other people or volunteers with the church or you yourself, get them plugged in to an area that connects with interests they have. Maybe they have a family or a child that could be in the children's ministry or the youth ministry Maybe they are a physician and would like to go and serve as a medical team, a part of a medical team on a mission trip the church is going on. That way, the sooner they get plugged in, statistically speaking, the sooner they will tithe. And the response I got from pushing back on that was you just have too much seminary in you and you like your paycheck, don't you? And so when I was back looking at doing this second degree and sitting in class and I was hearing these things and I had this experience in the back of my mind and I would raise my hand and say, I want to believe this message that I did believe when I got my Master of Divinity. However, this is the truth of my experience. And so how do I reconcile these two? how do I flesh this out? How do I make sense of this? How do I hold space with, I really want to believe that being a pastoral staff member at a local church, that I don't have to worry about money. I don't have to worry about numbers. I don't have to worry about those things and how fast to get someone plugged in. So they give money, you know, I don't have to worry about those things that I can just focus on loving people and making an impact. However, they both are present. And so how do we grapple with that? How do we ethically reconcile, not wanting to approach or have an ulterior motive for getting involved in people's lives because really, I just need their money. So how do you reconcile that? What? How do I make sense of this? And I found that the people who I really looked up to and respected their words and their point of view were sidestepping those questions. And I was at the precipice of my belief system, completely deconstructing. And that experience was The kick to the one two by four that was propped up halfway, basically just holding on by one of the corners, teeter-tottering over the edge of a cliff that got kicked and the whole house came down. And these experiences of not being able to unpack this experience, not being able to find a space to... Reconcile with what I had just experienced and try to reconstruct, deconstruct, expand, rearrange my belief system, it all just came crashing down. And so that led to me pushing pause and leaving the seminary, not finishing the Masters of Spiritual Direction I had picked back up at the time. And I got a job bartending and I said, you know what? I'm going to take a year. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to get into a different career and we're going to be all good. And that is not how it went down. So I did leave and I did enjoy bartending. I experienced this first wave of fuck all this Jesus shit I'm Buddhist now and after about two weeks of that I found okay it's really not that simple and to just about face from one to another and so I started going back to therapy and I started unpacking this belief system that I had ascribed to and I I then quickly realized and found out that the hatred and the bigotry and the homophobia that existed in my upbringing carried over into my confession of faith in college, carried over into interning at this nonprofit before seminary, into going into seminary and training at a conservative, I would argue, theological institution, moving into pastoral ministry in a denomination that is currently splitting over whether or not to ordain and marry LGBTQIA plus members, to knowing that I have preached sermons against the practice of homosexuality and it took my belief system shattering in order for me to be honest at the fact that I am gay. And what happened and what unfolded from that moment was the work of forgiving myself for pushing part a very sacred, beautiful Valid part of who I am, so far back and deep inside of my personhood that it took an entire belief system crumbling for me to reconcile with the fact that no, the Lord is not calling me to all of these years of singleness (laughs) because I don't want to date men. I'm just gay. So that was incredibly freeing and. Then I got the opportunity to come out to friends and family, many of which were not surprised and had known for years. And so that led me into this acceptance and love of myself. And that movement forward helped me to then reconcile and forgive myself and make amends for the damage that I had caused and that I had played a part in, in continuing the damaging message that if you're gay, God doesn't love you. If you're, if you're trans, you are not worthy of love. If you're fill in the blank, then you are less than. And I got to make amends for that. And I think it's very important for me to be able to be honest about that part of my life because it's not pretty and it's not clean cut, but it is redemptive because when I can love and accept myself and I can be who I am and I'm not hiding and I'm not pushing that part of who I am down or dismissing or negating it, then. I have found in my experience to be true that the level of judgment and hatred and bigotry that then comes out of my mouth is far lessened because when you can find self acceptance and self love, you no longer hate the people that are walking around saying, I'm good, I am worthy of love. I am holy, I am beautiful, I belong, I have a seat at the table, because for me, in my experience, those hateful messages were coming out of a place that was a total disconnect for me about the fact that I had so much internalized homophobia and self-hatred that that in turn translated into me continuing a homophobic and hateful message. And then came the next phase of all of this forward movement when I was in my first out relationship and had to then navigate through my immediate family's disappointment and disapproval of that relationship. I ended up moving from Lexington, Kentucky to Cleveland, Ohio to move in with her and got a job for a few months to be able to obviously financially contribute and take care of my own financial needs while living with my ex-girlfriend. And then that took place in October of 2016 that I moved up there, and then at the end of January of 2017, I began a new career with the company I currently work for, and two weeks into my new job, I was diagnosed with stage 3B Hodgkin's lymphoma. I know. Fuck. Fuck. <laughs> Another plot twist, another left turn you did not see coming. So in the midst of working through and wading through this deconstruction and rebuilding of a belief system that had been demolished from leaving the religious institution, I found myself looking at and having to grapple and reconcile with my own mortality. And I'm sure just as many cancer patients and survivors can probably also confirm in their own way, in their own experience, I grasped onto this belief that this will not take over my entire life. My entire life will not be defined by cancer and how that presented in my own life was my absolute stubborn white knuckling death grip that I had on I will work full time. I will continue to work because I'm not going to be stuck at home just thinking about the fact that I have cancer and being up close and personal to is it going to kill me or am I going to live? And so for the type of cancer I had is a a type of blood cancer. And unlike a hard cancer, like a breast cancer, bone cancer, they don't cut it out. And so I went through six months, six rounds, 12 infusions of A, B, V, D chemotherapy treatment. So throughout the six months, I was in active cancer treatment. My world looked like every other week for six months, I would have chemo treatments. And for work, that meant that the day I had chemo and the day after were my two days off that week. And then on day three, I was back at work. Now, I did assume that eventually I would have to drop down to part-time because who works full-time throughout chemo treatment? Well... Turns out I did. (laughs) At the end of my six months, it's like I woke up from this intense survival mode and realized, oh wow, I really did just work full-time throughout my entire chemo. Now, my experience with chemo was, I want to say unique, but qualitatively and quantitatively. I don't know how accurate that statement is. So my numbers were always just, just high enough to receive chemo. And even the three times they were too low, they were right on the other side of, "Mm, we really shouldn't, but maybe we should. And I was always given the green light from my oncologist because they were just so close. And so for six of the 12 chemo treatments I had, I had someone with me, either a friend or a family member. And then for the other six, it was kind of like a grab bag, right? You'll have somebody with you this time. You won't the next time. You won't the next time. You will the time after that. And that's how everything unfolded. My last three chemotherapy treatments, I was alone for. And I can remember my very last one, a friend of mine was supposed to come to Cleveland for, and I had said, if you can't find childcare, no worries. You know, I just really don't want to be alone on this so I can ask someone else. And she was adamant that she would be able to be there. And then the day before chemo, I found out she couldn't find childcare and couldn't come. And I went to that last session alone. And the next day, I got this giant, giant, the biggest flower arrangement you can receive next to being like a Kardashian. And, you know, it was congratulations. So happy you're done. And it was from a huge group of my friends in recovery from Lexington. And I remember them and all of these other people in my life, my, my friends from work who cheered me on and encouraged me every day. I was at work through that experience um, and my other really close friends. I remember standing there and being like, I don't understand why everyone is so excited. I was just so exhausted and so beaten down and just grateful to be alive and have made it through. And unfortunately, about halfway through my treatment, I ended the relationship with my now ex-girlfriend and moved out of our home together and into my own apartment. And that shifted a lot for me as someone in active cancer treatment. And the people I... Chatted with in the waiting room who are also waiting for scans or tests or pre labs uh, or chemo. They also told me about their similar situation with that being married for 20 years, 10 years, three years, 25 years, and having their spouse just leave them at the point of diagnosis or a girlfriend or boyfriend. You know, staying with them, and then when their cancer relapsed, they were like, "I'm done. I want. I can't go through this again." Um, Or other friends and family distancing themselves, and I realized that my experience was not unique. It wasn't rare. I won't go so as, as far as to say it wasn't the exception. It was the rule because, by and large, I don't think that's a fair assessment to make. However, I think that what I do feel comfortable saying is that there is a very common trend of someone to start cancer treatment or be diagnosed with treatment or have a recurrence or a relapse of their cancer and have people distance back away or just straight out cut ties and leave them as a result. And I think that ought to be addressed more. I think shame and guilt and embarrassment... Keep people from sharing that, whether you're the person that leaves or you're the one that has had cancer. Um, I'm sure there are people who go through a cancer experience, diagnosis, treatment, whatever, what have you, and they're the ones that leave or shut down or walk away. Regardless, I what I'm trying to say is this disease is so pervasive, and it affects far more than the body that it inhabits. Everyone is touched by it. And that experience, again, like some of the other experiences I'm briefly touching on today, need and deserve their own at least one episode, if not a mini series. (laughs) So at the end of my cancer treatment, I had to wait eight weeks before I could get my PET scan to see if I was in remission completely from Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I arm wrestled, not literally, just verbally with my oncologist and got him down to seven weeks of waiting while the inflammation in my body would settle down. So we didn't get a false read on the PET scan saying that maybe I was still Showing as active in some areas that actually were not active, they were just inflamed. And so I waited the seven weeks and then I went in at the beginning of September in 2017 and found out that yes, I was in fact in remission and no evidence of disease. Now, true remission is not achieved until after the five year mark, but as of September 2017, I was no evidence of a disease and remain so even today. And I will say that this second year of remission has been quite unique in that because of COVID, my two and a half year remission checkup, because now I've graduated to six month checkups from every needing to go every three months, I had that two and a half year mission checkup canceled because of COVID, because it was not safe for me to travel to the Cleveland Clinic. I do still return to the Cleveland Clinic for all of my follow-up visits. I got a referral and attempted to see someone here in Dallas and just did not connect with her, did not like the way that center or hospital system did their testing and readouts. At the Cleveland Clinic, you definitely I truly believe the way I experienced my diagnosis to right now where I am, that should be the norm for everyone because it was less than three weeks from when I went to the doctor because I had a swollen lymph node at the base of my neck above my collarbone and I couldn't get rid of a cough to, you know, getting diagnosed to starting chemo from that first appointment to when. My butt was in a chemo chair, was less than three weeks, and I called my oncologist, and I said, something feels off in my body. He said, okay, come on in, and we caught the lung toxicity complication I got from the drug bleomycin so early that the long-term scarring on my lungs is so insignificant, it's almost undetectable just because a physician believed me even when I couldn't give tactile evidence as to this is what it feels like or this is what I can and cannot do. And to be believed at the first sentence is what people in minority groups and women and every single person that steps foot in a doctor's office should experience from the get-go and that is not the norm and that needs to change. But again, that is for another episode, another time. So how they do scans and results is really what drove me to continue to go back to Cleveland for checkups because you walk in, you have your pre-labs, you go up to the waiting room to see your oncologist. When you see your oncologist, you immediately get your blood work results. And then you have your appointment and you're done. Now, if this is a session that you have or an appointment that you have a scan for, how that looks like is you go in for your Uh, scans. And if it requires contrast and they put an IV in, they take your blood work out from the IV they placed and they run that up to the lab instead of you having to go to the lab and then go down to get a scan. They streamline it. And then once they've taken your blood and they got your IV set up, you drink your contrast or they inject it, whichever kind you get. And then you have your scan. And then after your scan, you go up to the waiting room, you check in, you wait for your oncologist. And when you see your oncologist, he gives you your blood work results and your scan results, even though the radiologist has not done their final Um, readout of the scans. And then later on that evening, usually is when I would get a alert that said, you know, your final reading is up. I never waited more than six hours. And I'm being very generous when I say six hours for results. They were immediate, usually within, I think the max, uh, to be quite honest, I think the max I ever waited was three hours. Now couple that with coming down here to Dallas and being told we'll have your scan in three days and then in two weeks you'll come back for the results. As someone who never had to wait and someone who could luckily afford to return to Cleveland every three months and then now every six months, I just said thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> I'm gonna go back to see the person who saved my life and at the facility in which I do not have to wait. So for anyone out there needing a second opinion or inquiring um at where to get high, high quality cancer treatment, I am ride or die, Cleveland Clinic. So um uh, again, because of COVID, you know, my two and a half year remission checkup got canceled and I am now cleared to go in September for my three year remission checkup. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I'm nervous and I'm anxious. I've never got, not been to the doctor for this long in the last four years. Yeah, three and a half to four years. And so I'm really looking forward to going and to hearing that I'm still in remission and seeing my oncology team. And after that, you know, I figured out and I found out that I was um, three months cancer free and then six months and then nine months and then one year cancer free. And when I got to my one year of remission, I transferred with the company I work for down to Dallas, Texas. I, like I said at the beginning of this, I'm originally from a suburb of Houston and I wanted to be closer to my family to be able to work on those relationships and be more present and geographically closer and i also had spent time moving from texas to kentucky kentucky to mississippi mississippi back to kentucky and then kentucky to ohio and i was just ready at that point in time in my life to be settled put down roots and i debated on whether or not to go back to lexington or or to Finally, after a 10-year hiatus, go back to Texas, and I chose Texas. And since then, the last almost two years, this, this September will be two years that I've been back in Texas, have been some of the most wonderful, getting plugged in with the recovery community down here, starting to do the work of finding out and navigating and figuring out what life after cancer really looks like, that has been every bit as difficult as navigating through a deconstruction of one's belief system. And now, almost three years after cancer and almost seven years after leaving the religious institution, I've now find myself in a place where I am ready and in a, strong enough place and a good enough place to be able to productively articulate and share my story as well as help others who find themselves in similar positions. And that's how this podcast came about. You know, during quarantine, there were six weeks that I was not working and I had obviously a lot of time on my hand, as did millions, quite literally, of other people. And I got on the app TikTok and I made a funny video and it happened to go viral. And I realized in that experience and in the subsequent experiences that have happened with a handful of other videos I've made going viral that there are so many other people that have experienced or are experiencing what I experienced in the deconstruction of my faith, leaving the religious institution in my experience and in many of the experiences I've come into contact with, the Christian uh, religion framework and those different denominations that encompass that expression of faith. And, you know, there's not a lot of resources for how do you navigate through a deconstruction of your belief system as it pertains to the avenue of God or the divine? And all that encompasses everything from baptism to afterlife to to the concept of sin and all the different theologies and subsects that then layer underneath each of these really hard-to-navigate and unpack Focus points or topics or pillars, whatever you would like to call them, whatever makes the most sense and you connect the most with. Um, And this isn't limited to Christianity. It goes far beyond that and to the scope of every other major religion and other expressions of spirituality. And so with my theological knowledge, with the background that I have, being able to do things like... TikTok and making a podcast now. And I'm also working on a workbook that I will self-publish that will help guide and navigate through anyone deep going through a deconstruction or simply just wanting to be able to expand what your current belief system already is and be able to articulate in a way for yourself mainly, but also to be able to communicate that clearly to others. This is what I believe and why. And to have done the work yourself to navigate through, yes, this theology is problematic to me and this is why. And this theology I resonate with and I find truth in because of fill in the blank and fill in the blank and my experience and this, that, and the other. And this ability to Carve out I don't want to say compartmentalized because it's 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 not boundaryed, but the ability to hold one's expression of faith or expression of God or higher power or mother nature or the universe or the even even something as Complicatedly simple (laughs) as the law of attraction, right? To be able to walk through those, I learned how to do that in seminary. I did not learn that growing up in the local church. I did not learn that working as an intern at a campus ministry nonprofit. I didn't learn that in all of the Bible studies and the mentoring and mentoring others and all of the books I read. I learned it in seminary, and I do not think that that's fair and i think it does a great disservice because just because i have a master of divinity just because i once stood on a stage and preached sermons regularly wearing a stole or a collar that does not mean i'm some sort of a team when it comes to connecting with the divine and everyone else exists on a quote-unquote B team, if you will. There is nothing that I have, there is nothing that any rabbi, priest, pastor, minister has that somebody that does not hold a theological degree or or a place in a clergy, as a clergy member, a place within a denomination, as a clergy member is what I'm trying to say, that anyone that doesn't also have that same background and training doesn't also have access to and so my hope and my goal is to share my knowledge on a platform that is public for anyone regardless of what you believe or what your outlook on anything is whether it be heaven death birth reincarnation abortion, gay marriage, anything, but for you to be able, for, for me to be able to share my training for a way that you're able to find your truth and you're able to live that out authentically and you're able to express that in a way that you then are able to walk out your truth confidently. And so throughout this, I'll the main focus will be covering and discussing things such as there are two contradicting creation stories in the book of Genesis between Genesis one and throughout all of Genesis two. And why is it that we don't talk about that in the majority of Sunday school classes, or you don't hear pastors preaching about that. And my background and understanding and belief personally, that, It's because there's fear behind that, fear of invalidating what many call scriptural authority, fear of people having a crisis of faith. And I just am of the mindset that I can hold difficult information and I can examine it and I can learn about it and I can sit with it and I can arrive to my own conclusion about it, and that's not a bad thing. And so that's the that's the goal behind this this whole deal. So we'll be talking about things like that, um, as it pertains to scripture. We'll get outside of the Bible. We'll talk about um, a collection that is my personal favorite, and I find a lot of encouragement and depth from for myself uh, in a book called the Nag Hammadi, that also uh, the Gnostic Gospels. If you're familiar with that, exist within the Nag Hammadi, and so we'll cover things like that, and then we'll get into other topics as they arise as well, but all for the focus and the foundation of how do you expand or deconstruct a belief system, what tools are helpful, how do you navigate through that, so that you may arrive at a place where you are confident in what you believe and are also able to hold those things loosely so that as you grow and evolve and become more and more your truer self or your higher self, if you will, you are able to not be limited by systems that maybe have worked for you that no longer serve you. So that is a little bit about me. I'm really excited to dive further into this. My goal uh, and my promise and commitment to you, whoever you are, is that I will post once a week. And so look forward to that. I will be posting every Sunday. And so that's when you can expect new episodes to come out from me. So until then, be well, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to this.